Catholicism and the Necessity of Nationalism. In Jean Raspail's novel, Le Camp des Saints, The Camp of the Saints, the nation is under attack. One million migrants arrive on the shores of France, and over the course of 24 hours, the French nation changes beyond recognition. But the novel is less interested in prophesizing the tumult caused by mass migration as it is in prophesizing the prior transformation of European Christian civilization, which renders that tumult possible. The novel indicts a civilizational loss of confidence. Raspail has the Catholic Church bear some responsibility for this. In a failed bid to win the approval of the Third World, the Pope has, some years before the action of the novel begins, sold all the treasures of the Vatican. And as the migrants arrive and the native French abandon their own lands, priests go down to the beaches to cry, thank God, thank God. They rejoice to see the Christ image in the hungry migrant, but they prefer not to see that image in their fellow countrymen who must flee to preserve their livelihoods and sometimes their lives. Catholic Christianity has in the novel for some time been putting on the garb of humanitarian universalism. In one amusing scene, a Belgian official opposed to the spirit of the times hosts a gathering of 12 humanitarian luminaries. These apostles include an NGO doctor, secular idealist, Buddhist writer, atheist philosopher. There is also amongst them a bishop, but because he is dressed in a way identical to the others, the Belgian cannot tell them him apart. As Raspail's scene suggests and its symbolism suggests, the novel's real target is not migrants aspiring for Europe's riches, but the attitude amongst Catholics that evacuates the faith of its respect for national particularity and renders it indistinguishable from secular humanitarian universalism. In Le Camp des Saints, the nation is under attack, but from within, and the, change is, the charge is led in large part by a fifth column within the church, a left liberal Catholicism that denigrates loyalty to the nation in the name of greater charity, solidarity, universal conscience, and so forth. The novel is satire, or at least it should be. But in the Catholic Church today, too many Catholics act as if they read Raspray and didn't get the joke. They embrace uncritically the picture of the clergy therein, crying, thank God, thank God, while their own national communities disintegrate. These Catholics, outside and inside the clergy, do not grasp that in historic Catholic teaching, the nation is a necessary society. I'm going to give a sketch of how historic Catholic teaching supports love of nation and defense of national particularities, which is to say, nationalism. The framework of a necessary society arises out of the Leonin effort to understand the order of human affairs. Faced with the French Revolution, Pope Leo XIII turned to Aristotelian and Thomistic sources, to the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, to provide the framework for how Catholics should understand the social order that the revolution was destroying. Necessary societies are the societies that we need to live to take care of our bodily needs and to live well, to live ethically. They are societies that are necessary for human happiness. They are indispensable. The family, the primordial natural society, and the church, the essential supernatural society, are necessary societies. The role of the largest nat natural society, the polity, is to teach right conduct through laws in ways that the smaller, more immediate societies cannot do. Polity rests, though, on a real society, the patria, the fatherland, one's nation or one's country. This is not a voluntary association, but a natural and historical society. John Paul II observed that, quote, the nation and the fatherland, like the family, remain irreplaceable realities. Catholic social doctrine in these cases speaks of natural societies to indicate the particular link of the family or of the nation with the nature of man, which has a social dimension, end quote. 
The nation is also a moral order, an extension of the moral order provided first in the family. Just as we have attachment to our parents, so we have an intellectual and emotional attachment to the land of one's fathers to transmit its moral and cultural inheritance. As Pope Pius XII wrote, this ordering of human affairs into nations is founded on God's law. Quote, a disposition, in fact, of the divinely sanctioned order divides the human race into social groups, nations, or states, which are mutually independent in organization and in the direction of their eternal life, internal life, sorry, end quote. Human beings, therefore, have particular duties to their own nation's interest. Christianity never opposes or obstructs what is truly useful or advantageous to a country, wrote Pius XII. Elsewhere, he elaborates with quite a, a, quite a powerful image. Nor is there any fear, lest the consciousness of universal brotherhood aroused by the teaching of Christianity and the spirit which it inspires be in contrast with love of traditions or the glories of one's fatherland, or impede the progress of prosperity or legitimate interests. For that same Christianity teaches that in the exercise of charity, we must follow a God-given order, yielding the place of honor in our affections and good works to those who are bound to us by special ties. Nay, the divine master himself gave an example of this preference for his own country and fatherland as he wept over the coming destruction of the holy city." End quote. However much the consciousness of universal brotherhood advances, it does not entail the abandonment or dissolution of the natural love we have for a real historical society, the nation. So far I have argued that the nation is a necessary society for human flourishing, and conforming to the moral order requires having a preference for one's own nation. Why then should we go so far as to affirm this preference under the banner of nationalism? Why not settle with a common mid-20th century post-war framing whereby nationalism refers to an unhealthy love of one's own nation, perhaps motivated by excessive pride, and patriotism a healthy love of it? The patriotism-nationalism framing was perhaps once useful to inspire defense of one's nation against real or potential invasions by foreign totalitarian powers operating with distorted conceptions of the nation closed off to Christianity. But today, patriotism is not enough. Charles Maurras, an underappreciated Aristotelian, helps us understand why. He writes, patriotism is always said to be a piety toward the national land the land of one's ancestors, and by natural extension, the historical territory of a people. This virtue of piety particularly applies to the defense of the territory against the foreigner. But, the how, but however necessary patriotism may be, far from rendering the existence of nationalism useless, it necessitates it. It provokes it to life. Nationalism is the protection due to all those treasures that can be threatened without a foreign army crossing the border without the territory being physically invaded. Moras is right as to what we need today. While most Western nations don't face the immediate threat of foreign invasion, they face a more pernicious danger. Their inherited treasures are being destroyed from within. We do not face a revolutionary project that aims to distort the nation anymore. We face a revolutionary project that aims to destroy the nation. To counter this, we need a spirited and thoughtful defense of the necessary societies, including and especially the nation. For when one necessary society is under attack, all other necessary societies are in danger. They stand or fall together, and we must buttress up the defenses, notably where they have been undermined by a fifth column. The nationalism Catholics should endorse must not be understood as a rigid doctrine, but as an ethic dedicated to preserving the link between the natural association of the nation on the one hand 
and the fulfillment of human flourishing on the other. French Catholic political philosopher Pierre Boutin helps us see what this ethic means. He writes, it is a way of acting, expressing my relationship to a community into which I was born, a community I did not choose any more than I chose my father. All spiritual relations are revealed and developed through it. Far from this nationalism being a doctrine of pride, it hinges all worldly happiness on an initial act of humility, the recognition of a primordial finitude. I am born here, not elsewhere, son of a family, inheritor of a name." End quote. The sketch I've provided so far is Aristotelian and Thomist. It's rooted in natural law and nature. But in the final part of my talk, I want to be more explicitly supernatural. To combat the contemporary attack on nations also requires recovering a tradition that many Catholics, in the name of finding the good and the true in one's opponent, shy away from. That tradition is not afraid to draw the friend-enemy distinction at its most fundamental and spiritual level. We must recover an understanding of the mystery of iniquity, he who strips these natural societies of their proper authority and dissolves the nations to gather rights and powers to himself. He will call himself a state, writes Benedictine Dom Delat in his commentary on Second Thessalonians. The course toward a state, a superstate, dissolving all real and social, all real social and national life in the name of advancing universal peace often masquerades as a new Christendom, but it is a diabolic caricature of it. Christendom was a family of living nations with prosperous social hierarchies, rich in peoples, and to crib from one of Pius XII's wartime Christmas addresses, not rich in the masses, the distorted conception of a people modernity accelerates, made interchangeable and replaceable by their subordination to unlimited technological progress. Christendom was a family of nations, each having their own proper genius and sovereignty, but united in the faith. The danger we face then is spiritual, prompted by suspicion of the natural separation of the world into nations, and seduced by visions of universal peace, we are on an accelerating path toward realizing that diabolic caricature of Christendom. Against this, we must know our enemy, name him as iniquity, and say, vare retro. Yet, like Raspai, we should ask the hard question as to whether the church itself has played a role in this acceleration. I'll conclude by a brief effort, too brief, to wrestle with that hard question. As René Girard observes, the definitive collapse of continental imperial ambitions, Napoleonic or otherwise, liberated the papacy. It removed its most powerful secular challengers, but it has also removed the checks they provided. It has let unmitigated ultramontanist habits and exaggerated conceptions of papal power ascend. ascend. There is afoot a dangerously apocalyptic conception of the papacy as an agent dissolving nations and empires and moving humanity closer to universal peace and brotherhood. It can sound nice, but it is a Napoleonic image of the papacy. We need to find a way to restrain exaggerated and dangerously apocalyptic conceptions of papal power. To do so, we must be attentive to the historical theological inheritance contained within nations. A good place to start looking for these restraints would be to look closely at the church in the French nation, the Gallican church. We could discuss how the Gallican method grounded theology and scripture, patristics, the historic practice of the church, and how these strategies helped Gallicans seek rapprochement with Protestants. But for our purposes, we should stress that the Gallicans affirm the independence of nations from direct clerical interference. We should note that John F. Kennedy's 1960 Houston, Texas address to Protestants, still held in high regard, I think, in American Protestantism and in American, Protestant, uh, American uh, Catholicism, is, as Pierre Manon's best student, Emile Porosocin, wrote, the American equivalent of the first Gallican article of 1682. 
And perhaps, most importantly, the Gallicans contended that the Catholic faithful have a duty to resist and even correct the Pope if he strayed from scripture or the teachings of the Church Fathers. Of course, we must keep in mind Vatican I, just as a rigid doctrine of nationalism is not open to us, so a rigid doctrine of Gallicanism is likewise closed off. Yet, if the times demand an ethic of nationalism to confront our political challenges, then perhaps they also demand an ethic of Gallicanism to confront our theological ones. The alternative, where we acquiesce toward the iniquitous ascent of the superstate and the triumph of unrestrained ultramontanism, is dangerously apocalyptic. Thank you.